Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. They walk calm and primal, of no dimension, and to us unseen. They walk foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howl through at their seasons, which are in the blood and differ from the seasons of man. The winds gibber with their voices. The earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest. They raise up the waves. They crush the cities. Yet not forest or ocean or cities beholds the hand that smites. As a foulness shall they be known to the race of man. Their hands are at the throats of men forever. From the beginning of known time to the end of time known. Man rules where once they ruled. Soon they shall rule again where man rules now. They shall return, and on this returning shall break the balloon, be free from earlier beneath the sea, and him who is not to be named shall come from his city, which is Carcosa near the Lake of Ali, and Shabnaburu just shall fall and multiply in hideousness. The Nihilakata shall carry the words of the great old ones of their millions, and not suffer, who is all in one, and one in all, just lay his hand upon that who oppose him, and destroy then from the black lit caverns living in the earth, where all is chaos and destruction shall come the noxious Azafoth, and together they will take possession of all things that live upon earth. Henry! Turn that television off! You know it's bad for your eyes! Yes, dear. And now, if there are no further questions... Strange eons have passed, and it's now time once again for the Lovecraft Geek. And I am said geek, Robert M. Price. Good to make your acquaintance, if this is your first time. Uh, Of course, you know, we uh, deal with all matters Lovecraftian, and uh, got a bunch of goodies from a bunch of Lovecraft scholarly types today. Uh, Let me just uh, recommend, if you're not familiar with the works of Eric Davis, uh, Eric with a K, he has, uh, well, one uh, very, very fascinating book called Technosis that is just, uh, just ranges all over interesting stuff with science and popular culture and just, it's just really interesting. And, uh, but one I am reading today is called Nomad Codes, which is a collection of various essays published different places originally. And one of them is about Lovecraft and, uh, he has some really good insights. I'm going to be on the, on his show. Uh, expanding mind um, on May 1st and uh, you're welcome to tune in Uh, let's see actually I'm recording it I don't know what uh, if they do it later or what but you might take a look at the at their site I'm sure googling uh, Eric Davis would do the trick well, let's get into some uh, some queries this from Kane Perlick in Detroit 
One of the aspects of Lovecraft that I've always enjoyed is the litanies or invocations he writes for the various deities, be it Charles Dexter Ward invoking Yogg-Sothoth in a calculated and controlled manner, or a delirious reveler barking out gibberish. That's well put. I was wondering if you had a favorite invocation of Lovecraftian horror. Uh, some of my favorites are The Pit of the Shagaths, Yashabnigurath, The Goat with a Thousand Young, from The Thing on the Doorstep, and Gorgo, Mormo, Thousand-Faced Moon, Look Favorably on Our Sacrifices. I think he pulled the latter out of the Encyclopedia Britannica, as I believe Joshi points out. Right you are. Uh, I have to admit, uh, some of the stuff that's in the language of Rillier, I would use the adjectival version, but I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, I, uh, that leaves me cold. I mean, it's good. Uh, it's good because you want to show the alienness of it. It has the same effect as uh, glossolalia in religious services, speaking in tongues. Uh, well, why do it if you can't understand what they're saying? Well, that's the whole point. Uh, you can't understand, as First Corinthians says, you're speaking mysteries in the spirit. That's the languages of angels, as it says. Well, that's kind of what's going on here, but it's the language of aliens, and so it's uh, usually not translated. You, you, What you want to communicate is the sense of cosmic alienage. Um, but... Um, of the other stuff, you hit my favorite right at the start. I just, I mean, some of this stuff just seems to be personal lamentation as the, as Derby is reflecting back, uh, like post-traumatically, uh, on this, uh, this, this thing he's, uh, just been through. He, he's brought to, uh, Chesuncook, Maine, into the wilderness, down into this cave, uh, under the steer of his wife, Azanath, and suddenly wakes up there in this chamber of horrors, and he's explaining it to his friend Dan, and he says, the pit of the shagas, etc. I love that. And, and then he does go on into the rest of what you quote, which is certainly uh, an invocation, apparently what he heard or said while he was there. Uh, that's really powerful uh, uh, to me. I love it when he goes on and says that this, uh, this hooded thing was saying Camog, which was the cult name of Ephraim Wade. Oh, what a tale, what a tale. Uh, I, uh, guess my favorite post-Lovecraftian one, and this is a tough one to, uh, to pick, uh, because I had, uh, Richard Tierney, and Joe Pulver both write a bunch of uh, liturgies and invocations for uh, the Book of Ibon that uh, was published by Chaosium some years ago. And as you may remember, I said in the introduction that my goal in compiling this thing, well, I was trying to carry on Lynn Carter's idea of uh, creating the Book of Ibon and filling out all of these cautionary tales that that uh, Ibon was writing for future wizards. And because that's kind of the way he, uh, Smith himself said that uh, uh, the white worm was uh, supposed to uh, be understood. And I thought, yeah, that'd be good, and we need uh, ritual texts uh, that, uh, because the Book of Ibon is certainly described as containing material like that, and I got these guys to do psalms and ritual invocations. 
and uh, the uh, though I loved them all, they were very, very good stuff. My favorite has to be one that Joe Pulver wrote, uh, The Black Litany of Nug and Yeb. Of course, that does have a toe in Lovecraft, because... Uh, I, I went through Will Murray's terrific compilation of all these tidbits of mythos lore supplied in Lovecraft's letters in his salutations and closings, where he'd dropped these, he'd name dropped these things, and he, and one of them he says, "Yours by the black litany of Nug and Yeb." Oh boy, is that evocative? No pun intended. And so I got uh, Joe to write it, and uh, man, oh man, did he do a great job. I have led an ant tiffinal reading of that more than once uh once we uh, did that at the necronomicon the convention uh, up in uh i guess it was danvers uh, way back when and then another time uh, at the grail the uh sort of living room church service carol and i used to have uh, in new jersey uh, where we uh, did a uh, memorial service for Anton LaVey and uh, I, before the uh, the guest speaker who knew LaVey uh, came up to the pulpit, I uh, led the, the faithful in the black litany. And uh, it appears also on Strange Eons, a CD. Uh, came out some years ago. Boy, what fun. So, I mean, that's my favorite. And it, again, it does have some kind of connection with Lovecraft. Another one uh, he mentions in a story, he, I mean, in a letter, he says, Is the gray right of Azathoth of no avail? Well, I couldn't uh, let that one go, uh, so I um, wrote a story that's just come out in a book called The Dark, the dark Rites or The Black Rites of Cthulhu. Uh, my story is The Gray Right of Azathoth. Oh, boy. I love that stuff. Often uh, what Lovecraft writes in that vein is better than what you actually find in uh, these uh, grimoires that are about as exciting as the book of Leviticus. Um, uh, so, Kane, I hope that uh, that helps. Good question. Jonathan says, are you at all familiar with the work of Jason Colavito? Um, Mr. Colavito is a skeptic with a specialty in ancient aliens and such. He seems to have successfully traced many of the ideas that appear in UFO and ancient alien claims back to H.P. Lovecraft and other Weird Tales writers. It's a fascinating story of how bad translations of old texts and pulp fiction were appropriated by cranks to create the modern UFO mythology we have today. Your thoughts on this topic, how fiction contributes to and even becomes modern folklore, would be appreciated. Yeah, this, uh, this essay by uh, Eric Davis on Lovecraft and Davis's Nomad Codes does a really interesting job dealing with that, how chaos magicians and others, knowing that Lovecraft uh, was not in touch with real metaphysical entities and how he only meant it as fiction, uh, they're saying, yeah, what of it? Uh, what isn't fiction? And they uh, cobble that and innumerable other sources into uh, rituals and so forth. It's uh, it's really interesting. Um, without that sophistication, though, there have for some decades been people that refused to believe the mythos and the Necronomicon were fictional. And uh, so you, and sometimes that credulity was helped along by 
uh, clever schemes and such uh, by people inserting fake card catalog entries for the Necronomicon or having fake listings and antiquarian book catalogs of the Alazif and so forth. And uh, there are plenty of people that think that uh, the Necronomicon really exists. And, of course, in a sense, now it does, because you can go out and find books uh, stamped with the title Necronomicon. Uh, the, uh, the old standbys are pretty boring. The George Hay Necronomicon, uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, project. I, I don't want to say hoax, because I don't think they thought the reader would not get it. Um, uh, Colin Wilson was involved with this, and it's kind of fun in the basic conception, but not that exciting. Uh, uh, then there was the one uh, that George Sithers published and uh, Elspreg DeCamp put together that has a fun preface by DeCamp, but it's just repeating signatures of what looks like uh, Arabic but is not. And it's again, it's like it's like fun to have on the shelf. And there's the Simon Necronomicon, which is just a bunch of uh, old Sumerian magical or ritual texts with a few mythos names thrown in. Also a real snoozer. And uh, though there are prologue and epilogue sections of bad fiction, the testimony of the mad Arab, there are other works uh like fictitious first-person narratives of Al-Hazred uh, that are that are much much better stuff done decades later, and um, but there there is no real well I guess you wouldn't say uh, ancient but early medieval uh, text of the Necronomicon. It is a, a fiction. And uh, the fact that people don't seem to realize that is a prime example of fiction becoming at least believed in as history. The same thing with the old ones and all of that. Uh, Lovecraft uh, explained in a letter once how his old pal Bill Lumley, with whom he uh, collaborated on poetry and a story or two, uh, Lumley was sort of an eccentric. This He's not a relative of Brian Lumley, um, who'd never fall for this. But uh, William Lumley thought that Lovecraft, Howard, and the rest of them were actually in touch with these alien entities about which they wrote. And they may have thought they were just writing fiction, but oh no... Uh, he knew better. How he knew better, per, per, um, thought, presumed to know better, I, I don't know. But uh, let's see. Uh, but that goes way back to Lovecraft himself, and fans were already asking if the Necronomicon was real or assuming that it was real and asking how they could get a copy, and Lovecraft would disabuse them of this illusion somewhat reluctantly, one might guess. But this has certainly happened, and you you have to assume that science fiction has been a major uh, source for the UFO religions we have. As for Colavito, I read that uh, book that uh, Prometheus put out and enjoyed it, but I don't think Lovecraft... Well, you, you mentioned Lovecraft and other old writers. It, uh, I remember him trying to trace it back to Lovecraft, period. And uh, I... Uh, that could well be, but I don't know that you could document that in any way. I'd be a little surprised if Eric Von Daniken or any of these people that promote this view have actually said they got it from Lovecraft. They, they may have. I've never seen it. But one thing i got to point out, I collaborated with my old buddy Charles Garofalo on an article way back in the second issue of Crypto Cthulhu in 1981 
called Chariots of the Old Ones. And in it, we pointed out the extensive parallels between Lovecraft and Eric von Daniken and the others. And uh, I noticed Colavito has that article listed in his bibliography, though he doesn't give us any credit. Uh, His case is, uh, though more extensive, so similar to uh, what uh, Garofalo and I said. I I wonder if he even got the idea from there, Uh, but it doesn't really matter. And uh, it's, it's hard to say. It's kind of a natural um, theory about, uh, it's very similar to the, what would you call it, a euhameristic theory that that the ancient religions and myths were based on encounters with space aliens, even if it was humanoid ones like Kirk and Spock. This is this is sort of an obvious guess. Uh, it does. It's not such a big shocker that somebody could only have come up with it once. And uh, it's not even a far-fetched theory. I don't know how much real evidence there is for it, but it's not uh, its not ridiculous or absurd in any way. But uh, the book certainly is interesting. I don't remember the, uh, the title of it, but uh, Jason Colavito, C-O-L-A-V-I-T-O, worth a look. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, Jonathan says, I'd also like your thoughts on Thomas Ligotti's work. I tried reading it and found his short story, The Last Feast of the Harlequin, fascinating, but I found much of it burdened by his ridiculous philosophical ideas. His book, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, was mostly unreadable. Uh, well, I, I have to say that uh, that book didn't strike me as unreadable at all. I know different people have totally different reactions to the same text, but I can just say subjectively I found it uh, pretty fascinating and intriguing. I didn't agree with the philosophy in it and wrote an extensive review in my uh, Zarathustra Speaks column. Uh, It comes out every month. And uh, the review is called The Sword of the Stillborn. And in it he argues and and shows he has predecessors that have argued that uh, human, well, that intelligence was a kind of an unfortunate anomaly, uh, an unfavorable mutation that appeared in the world, and we'd be better off without it and so forth. It's pretty depressing. This comes up, this is reflected in some of his fiction, but I don't think his stories are really about that in any way. He is, uh, I think he's sort of conveying in in, uh, most of his books, his stories, the spectacles in the drawer of Astarian, the mystics of Muhlenberg and so on. He is uh, really setting forth there a kind of a Buddhist notion of the emptiness of all things. And uh, the, the the idea that everything is Maya, it's not as real as you think, uh, and that uh, if you were to attain true gnosis, true knowledge, esoteric knowledge, because it's knowledge of something not obvious, you might just be inclined to despair uh, that it's just, you know, is that all there is, that the that there is esoteric knowledge, but it's not really enlightenment exactly. I just find Ligotti's work fascinating, and in my new collection of old sermons, Preaching Deconstruction, a couple of them are based on passages from Ligotti's stories. Uh, I think his, his work has a genuine spiritual content, 
Uh, and it, uh, I, I recommend it to everybody. I think this guy is one of the great modern geniuses of weird fiction. So I, I love his work. I'm glad you asked about it. Um, my, uh, good pal, Dr. Barton, who, uh, frequently submits questions and shares information on the Bible geek, turns out is a Lovecraft geek as well. And here's a couple of, uh, emails from him. First, he says, many readers find the shadow out of time and a future where mankind disappears from galactic history depressing. I suspect that Lovecraft, despite his usual gloomy view of humanity, might actually have left the question open since he says absolutely nothing about it except for one tantalizing implicit clue. Cthulhu disappears from the galactic scene at the same time. That's right, the beetles that inherit the earth from humans do not seem to have been troubled by Cthulhu and his ilk. I've always speculated that since humanity evolved under Cthulhu's influence and seemed strangely resistant to his influence, humanity had evolved defenses against Cthulhu. As such, perhaps the reason that both humanity and Cthulhu disappear from galactic history at about the same time excuse me, it's late in the day, um, is that humanity defeated Cthulhu and was destroyed in the process, or that they co-opted Cthulhu and transcended the physical plane of galactic history. What are your thoughts on the subject? Have you heard of anyone else noticing this point? No, I, I have not, actually, and it's it's never really occurred to me. I think the question presupposes a kind of a, a harmonization between stories that the assumption that they lock together in such a systematic way that even when Lovecraft didn't make certain connections, we ought to be able to plot them out. But I don't think it was that systematic. I think by the time he was writing stuff like At the Mountains of Madness and The Shadow Out of Time, he's uh, moving more toward overt science fiction in a sense all of the mythos stuff is science fiction clothed in superstitious language but he seems to uh, also the whisperer in darkness he's he's getting more into a rationalizing phase and uh, i think he just decided to take off in different directions and didn't really care whether it all fit together in The Whisperer in Darkness, the pseudo-Akeley, probably Nyarlathotep in disguise, is telling Wilmarth various secrets about the, the arcane horrors of the universe. And um, the murals carved into the walls of the City of the Old Ones in, at the Mountains of Madness preserve records of war against the Cthulhu spawn and all of that. But when, and then also, uh, when you get to the shadow out of time, there are references back to at the mountains of madness, uh, which presumes that they're in the same narrative universe. And therefore uh, it does presuppose that there was uh, a dominance by Cthulhu in the remote past. But, um, I don't think any of these stories hold out the prospect for this apocalyptic return of Cthulhu. Now, that is, obviously, in uh, the uh, the Call of Cthulhu, and something like it is uh, is present in the Dunwich Horror, 
but uh, I, I kind of think that in The Shadow Out of Time, he has simply made the same point about the uh, almost accidental, incidental destruction of the human race in a different way. He, he doesn't this time have Cthulhu and the Old Ones come or the Old Ones coming through the gate that yogg Sothoth opens. Uh, he is, in, instead he's getting at the, like the, the underlying point there is that human beings are really maggots. Uh, they're uh, just uh, insects. The universe doesn't even know about us and isn't concerned with us. It's not angry at us, but its inexorable forces will one day drive us to extinction as they did the dinosaurs, right? And uh, so that end of man, that that idea of the fleeting, ephemeral character of unimportant humanity, uh, that is both depicted in terms of the return of the old ones in Call of Cthulhu and Dunwich Har, and in the uh, supersession of our race by evolutionary successors in the um, just as uh, just as our unhuman predecessors dwarfed us but in in the shadow out of time we just die away these uh, the the beetle race just replaces us uh, presumably i think implicitly because the insects essentially already do run the earth they really own it as much or more than we do and so they will evolve into an intelligent space-faring race just because we're out of the way i mean something like the planet of the apes scenario and i think he that's the same cosmic futilitarianism as some call it that and it's just being uh depicted in a different way um you sh i mean very often you you can actually tie up loose ends and connect the dots but here i suspect the inconsistency is just a result of different narratizing of the same basic philosophy this anti-humanism okay another one from the good doc and I, he insists this isn't true but i think i know better Dr. Barton is a pseudonym, and uh, I uh, have to wonder if it doesn't reflect the character in The Creature Walks Among Us. Now, he says no, and I grudgingly have to admit he's probably right, but I sort of like to think he's the uh, the jealous husband, uh, mad scientist in um, The Deep One. I mean, The uh, Creature Walks Among Us. Okay, but here he goes again. You were mentioning Innsmouth and Johanna Thlay, and it reminded me of a project that I need to resurrect someday. Um, in my younger days, I applied my mythological inquiry to Lovecraft's works, as I have more recently to the Bible. One of the projects that I worked on was a guide to public domain Lovecraftian creatures, as done from the point of view of a secret government agency that deals with such beings. Would that be Delta Green, possibly? Oh, let's see. Um, what can I say? I was into gaming at the time. Unlike so many Lovecraftian enthusiasts, I took the approach that Lovecraft was, in general, writing science fiction that involved being so far beyond our scope of understanding as to seem magical. 
As such, I tried to build a richer background, both biological and cultural, to many of these creatures. One of the creatures that I described was the Deep Ones. In this section, I dealt a bit with the history of what happened to Innsmouth and Johanna Thlay after the Navy bombing. I took the approach that while the Deep Ones were an alien culture, they weren't completely alien. Many of them had been raised as Americans, after all, and they weren't all fanatics. They could see the dangers that a determined Navy with a lot of bombs could wreak on Johanna Thlay, and so they agreed to a mutual cooperation Act. Fortunately, there was a young genius available to develop the technology to facilitate cooperation and communications between the two cultures, Tom Swift. One of his contributions to the cause was the amphibious train, which ran between Innsmouth and Johannath Ley. I also mentioned that Germany made an alliance with the Deep Ones in the North Atlantic, which forced the U.S. to recruit Johannath Leyans into the war effort. One of the unintended consequences of that action was that it leaked down into the fictional comic book adventures of the Prince Roman of Atlantis. Reverse the spelling of Roman. Of course, Prince Namor, the Submariner. Uh, you know, there was that, uh, I think in the 50s, like the same year the Creature from the Black Lagoon came out, Bill Everett, who was writing and drawing the Submariner at the time, had a, a strip where the some scientist created a being that looked exactly like the creature from the Black Lagoon and had name or punch him out. Uh, anyway, sorry, back to Dr. Barton. There was also some good stuff on the Meister Rotten, R-A-T-T-E-N, ghouls and other creatures. I haven't seen the text in years, but I've always wanted to dig it out and update it a bit. If I do, I'll send you a copy. And that and my guide to Arkham, based to a large extent on some very interesting true historical details of Salem, Massachusetts. Um, there doesn't seem to be any good solution to the Arkham-Salem dichotomy. Lovecraft does seem to have overlapped their use in a few places. I did, however, come up with what I think is a reasonable patch. And, and let me just add a little footnote here. Arkham sounds like it's a fictional counterpart to witch-haunted Salem, and yet he also mentions the real Salem beside it in some uh, some story. So is Arkham Salem or not? I mean, there's a whole other uh, issue that Will Murray brings up because of the uh, reservoir mentioned near Arkham in The Color Out of Space. Uh, Will thinks that uh, Arkham may actually be based on Oakham, O-A-K-H-A-M, Massachusetts. Fascinating. Anyway, uh, reasonable patch. Salem and Arkham were originally sister towns which were growing larger and would eventually overlap. From them, oh, wait a minute, sorry, a few decades, a few decades after the witchcraft trials and because of the bad press Salem got from them, the people of the now abutting towns of Salem and Arkham agreed to incorporate as a single city named Arkham. Since then, some people still refer to the historical Salem as Salem, but it is no longer the name of the unified city. Ooh, uh, that is interesting. However, you know, the old Salem now goes by the name of Danvers. There is Salem Village with the witch house that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about, but that was not the uh, Sa Salem of the Witch Trials. 
that is Danvers, Mass., uh, where we had the first couple of Necronomicons. I don't know if that matters, but uh, uh, you're an inventive guy. I did something similar to what you're saying about the Deep Ones in a story I just finished called uh, The Batrachian Prince that's coming out in an anthology some months from now. So thanks a bunch, Doc. Oh, let's see. Uh, this is from Dangerous Blossom. Uh, in a Lovecraft Geek podcast, you said that HPL was not fond of Plato. Can you please explain what he had against him? Also, where did he say this? Well, uh, I had a pretty general idea, but I got it from uh, from S.T. Joshi, so I decided, what the heck, let's just go to the expert, and here's what S.T. says about it. Well, there aren't that many mentions of Plato in HPL's letters, but I gather that HPL didn't care for Plato's philosophical idealism. He was a, Lovecraft was a proponent of the materialism advocated by Democritus and, Epicur, and Epicurus, there were atomists, right? And also criticized Plato for being collectivist in a way that HPL, even during his later socialist phase, would not have approved of. I find one passage in the letter most amusing. So this is Lovecraft. I have a use only for abstract cognition without social or utilitarian connotations. Uh, the thing which Thales and Anax Anaxagoras and Heraclitus went after, and which was clearly definable by the word philosophy until those pragmatical puffballs, Socrates and Plato, threw a monkey wrench into the works and crippled human thought of the next two millennia. Letter to Frank Belknap Long, February 27, 1931. Selected Letters, Volume 3, pages 298 to 99. Hear, hear, says S.T. So he didn't like uh, metaphysical idealism and said we ought to... I mean, that's really it. He, uh, he, he was a materialist and preferred that among the ancients, and uh, so that's why. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Thank you, Dangerous One. Mm. Uh, this from Evelyn Hill. For the last few years, I've been a fan of your Bible Geek podcast, and when you started the Lovecraft Geek, it rekindled my interest in HPL. I seem to have come to Lovecraft later in life than most. Parenthesis, most of us fanatics uh, hopped aboard the, the Shantak uh, at about age 12 to, to 13. Okay. Uh, I became dimly aware of the Cthulhu mythos in my teens through pop cultural osmosis, and it wasn't until my early 20s that I decided to get to the source material of all the interesting references that were popping up in music and video games I liked. I read through many of his major works and enjoyed them, but I never got around to reading them all or reading anything else Lovecraftian or mythos for quite a while. With the premiere of the Lovecraft Geek, I decided it would be interesting to go through all of HPL's fiction in chronological order, and ended up skipping only a few, a few obscure collaborations. After reading it all, my favorite uh, of Lovecraft's stories is still my first, The Call of Cthulhu. It's, I think it was about the third one I read. I believe I read... Uh, 
Man, maybe it's the second one. I kind of think I read The Color Out of Space and then The Call of Cthulhu. Anyway, it's the first paragraph of the story that really moves me. It's the definitive statement of the Lovecraftian, quote-unquote, worldview and possibly the most eloquent phrasing of the idea that too much knowledge leads to madness. I don't think it's true, and I don't even think that Lovecraft always does the best job of cohesively narratizing it, but if it were true, I think it would be the most terrifying thing in the world, far more terrifying than merely the existence of any of the mythos entities, or even living in a universe run by the kind of tyrannical deity posited by most monotheists. That's because, for me, the terrifying thing wouldn't merely be the existence of some immensely powerful cosmic threat to humanity. It would be the idea that there are things so beyond human comprehension that we simply can't even understand it well enough to fight back, forget winning. In the call of Cthulhu, mankind won't even get the dignity of going down fighting. It implies there is an absolute limit to progress which falsifies humanism, religious or secular, and without any benevolent deities to save us, we're left with the choice of wallowing in either insanity or ignorance until the stars are right and the eschaton begins. The eschaton, of course, the end of the world. Well put. Now on to my question. What's up with Lovecraft and architecture? Since I've never been into architecture, I've found that many of his stories send me to Google for image searches just so I can figure out what he's referring to. You know, those gambrel roofs and stuff like that. He also does more with it than just lending verisimilitude to his stories or indulging in an antiquarian hobby. I haven't made a thorough study of it, but in many stories he uses the architecture of a culture or society as a metaphor for the society itself. The white trash in Beyond the Wall of Sleep and the Lurking Fear seem to have homes as degenerate as their culture, in his view. The fantastic architecture of his dream cycle seems to harken back to classical civilizations and to place them on the pedestal of an ideal golden age. The stone cities of the elder things and the great race of Yith, like their inhabitants, are alien and unhuman, but still recognizable and comprehensible in their form and function. The ramps and all that stuff, right? the library shelves. This contrasts with Rillier and its Cthulhu spawn inhabitants, which is apparently so beyond human understanding that one can't even walk down the, quote, street, unquote, without falling into a pit concealed by an optical illusion of non-Euclidean geometry. I haven't yet read Joshi's massive biography, but all this makes me wonder if architecture was something else that Lovecraft tried his hand at, or if it's just a product of combining good sense for theme and mood with his existing interest in New England history. Um, I think uh, it's not exactly an either-or thing. I'm sure he had no training or education in architecture, but he loved it to death. I mean, uh, he, he just absolutely loved the uh, architecture in Providence and then in Charleston and uh, Quebec and 
New Orleans and various places he he visited and wrote extensively about. The longest thing of any kind he ever wrote was his travelogue to uh, to Quebec. And uh, to him, the background was all important. It was really integral to his life and consciousness that he was a fixture in Old Providence, College Hill. Uh, and uh, he was uh, married, as you know, to Sonia Haft Green and for a few years and lived uh, with her and then without her when she was away on business in uh, Brooklyn. And he at first was enchanted with the place and liked it, but then began to feel it was a hell on earth. And after he and his wife parted, he rejoiced to board the train and get back up to Providence. And he wrote about this to his friends, saying that as he passed one train stop after another, his heart got lighter, and there he was finally amid the familiar sights of Providence. And he says, uh, why, I am Providence, which is what his tombstone says. So the, and a great deal of that was the architecture. And, and so uh, it, it seems to me that, well, he, he said that background is very important in establishing someone's identity. He certainly knew that firsthand. And so, uh, as Don Burleson says, Providence is the setting of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And in many ways, Providence and its history and its buildings are the main character of the story, not Joseph Kerwin or Charles Dexter Ward. I think Don's right about that. And it shows how important architecture was to him. And you have really made an insightful contribution there by showing these gradations of uh, symbolic significance of different architectures uh, and uh, from the... Uh, decrepit home of the Martenses to an oddly angled Rillier. Great job, great insight. Nice work. I'm sure ST has loads more to say about it, but I'm sure he'd agree with you, too. Uh, Maverick Ronan says, I've got a question, but I'm going to make a few comments first. Always welcome. Comedy and Lovecraft. I do wonder if the fly in the winged death was not inspired by Don Marquis' ignorant A-R-C-H-Y, the poet Cockroach. He too had to jump from key to key to type his messages. Also, I detect a parody of the coming race in... Lord, is that Lord Button? bulwer Lytton in the underground section of the mound uh, there are many similarities interesting that Lovecraft seems to be most playful in works that aren't going to carry his byline ain't it the truth uh, that, that is certainly true he really lets it go in the, the revision tales because he ain't going to be responsible for him, right? Uh, if you want a TV-based tie-in novel with Cthulhu connections, then Doctor Who is the one to go for. There have been several novels with mythos references, starting with White Darkness by David uh, McEntee, M-C-capital-I-N-T-E-E, -E, which is set on Haiti during the revolt of the early 20th century. Then there's All-Consuming Fire by Andy Lane, which has Sherlock Holmes investigating the theft of the Necronomicon from St. Jude's Library. 
uh, the last man recorded as consulting the book is The Doctor. There are other works, including one which introduces an elder god who goes by the name of Derleth. <laughs> I'm almost a complete stranger to Doctor Who, so I would never have known this. I wonder how many of our listeners knew it. I appreciate you mentioning it. Okay, I'm not aware of many Roman-based mythos stories, but Dick Tierney's fellow collaborator and sometimes... Call of Cthulhu role-playing game writer Glenn Raymond also wrote a novel set in ancient Rome called Air of Darkness, long out-of-print paperback, which may be regarded as a prequel to The Gardens of Lucullus. Uh, let me just parenthetically add, I I'm ashamed to say I've not yet read Air of Darkness, though I got a copy on my shelf, but I uh, did indeed read The Gardens of Lucullus, which enormously impressed me. Uh, that was published as a paperback by Fedogan and Bremer. I don't know if it's still available or not, but that is really terrific stuff. It's a Simon of Gitta adventure. Okay, while I didn't have the privilege of meeting El Sprague de Camp in person, I can't agree on your assessment of his Lovecraft book. I have read it. Uh, it is okay, certainly less obsessive than Joshi's, but de Camp has a nasty habit of belittling his subjects without acknowledging the context. He also makes connections and seems certain that uh, that connection is the same one that the author made. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I found the uh, the DeCamp biography largely unexceptionable. I uh, didn't really object to much in it, but I do think sometimes he didn't quite know when Lovecraft was kidding in his letters. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I think so. But with some of the stuff Lovecraft said, how he really felt like a Norseman and uh, should be drinking uh, his mead out of a goblet made from the skull of a slain foeman, DeCamp seemed to think this implied he was some sort of a nut and weirdo when it's absolutely obvious he's kidding. Uh, and uh, so there's a little bit of misreading on that. I um, did not care for his uh, somewhat contemptuous rebuking of Lovecraft as not being a consummate professional writer. Uh, that I thought he didn't even want to be, really. I mean, maybe he should have, but I, I found that a little beside the point. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, the telling section with the Lovecraft biography is that he comments that supernatural horror in literature was an article that any school teacher could have written. Maybe this is true, but school teachers uh, weren't writing this kind of thing. They regarded fantasy fiction as beneath them. DeCamp doesn't acknowledge that Lovecraft was laying the groundwork of fantasy criticism as a respectable subject of study. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't. I do not get the uh, the uh, reason for the disdainful patronizing tone toward that work which is not just a summary of material i mean in a sense it's supposed to be just a summary of it but is much more and uh this makes me think of uh, the school teacher thing and all that there is this terrific moment in the movie the whole wide world which is based on this fascinating book one Who Walked Alone by novel and Price Ellis, who was kind of an on-and-off uh, girlfriend of Robert E. Howard's. And uh, 
she uh, would have conversations with Howard and then come home and write them down as close as she could remember because she was trying to learn how to write convincing dialogue. And uh, so this helped her to do it. A pretty interesting idea. And so she left this treasure trove of transcribed discussions with Howard on all manner of subjects. Um... Well, there's this one scene, and I, she must mention it in the book too, but I, I, I just love the scene in the movie so much uh, that uh, that's what I remember. Renee Zellweger is playing Novelin, and, uh, and Vincent D'Onofrio is playing Howard. He does a great job. Uh, Novelin is a brand new school teacher in, I guess, Cross Plains, where, where Howard lived. And it's lunchtime, the uh, the classroom is empty, and um, the, her uh, supervisor looks out the window and sees uh, this uh, guy walking down the street, shadow boxing. Who the heck is this? And it turns out it's Howard. And uh, Novelin waves to him, and he comes on into the building. Well, in the meantime, the supervisor leaves. But uh, the two of them are talking, and uh, Howard says something like, I'm not as ignorant of literature as you may think, and he begins quoting Shakespeare. And uh, just about then, the supervisor, typical school marm, comes to the door and uh, is about to enter the room. Howard sees this, and without missing a beat in what he's saying, just pushes the door slowly closed in the woman's face, and to me, that so well typifies the uh, the difference between these uh, methodical, spiritless, pedantic uh, English teachers and uh, and and a true literary genius with a muse on his back. It is really great. Got to see it sometime. Um, so I agree there. Okay, the Robert E. Howard biography is sadly another matter entirely, and hearing you repeat the mantra of Howard was a nut quite saddened me as it is out it as it is as outmoded as the old mantra Lovecraft was a recluse. I cannot help but feel that DeCamp settled on his position in the nineteen fifties and never seriously revised it since, defending it in the face of criticism. He seems to have picked up E. Hoffman Price's beliefs, based on two personal meetings with Howard, that Robert E. Howard was paranoid and quote tied to his mother's apron strings, unquote, but this is Freudian nonsense. I strongly recommend reading Mark Finn's Blood and Thunder, which does much to counter these myths. For example, E. Hoffman Price felt that Howard's carrying a gun in his car to protect himself from enemies was was paranoid, but Finn finds newspaper accounts of highway robberies that partly support Howard's caution. Also worth reading is A Behavior Perspective by Charles Gramlich, Ph.D. It's in Two Gun Bob, a centennial study of Robert E. Howard from Hippocampus Books. This article rips to pieces the amateur psychology DeCamp engages in. It's probably the best piece in the book. We should also remember that when engaged in amateur psychology, one tends to see what one knows. DeCamp sees a Freudian schizoid Oedipal man in Robert E. Howard. 
By the way, you touch on DeCamp's defense of his use of schizoid to describe Howard in The Miscast Barbarian. Uh, I don't think that was me. I think that's in... uh, Oh, boy, what is it? Um, The Dark Barbarian, a symposium on Howard. I'm not in that book, I believe. Um, R.E.H.'s friend Harold Priest objected to that phrase. DeCamp countered that he was using the term in its medical sense and that all writers are ipso facto schizoid. But of course, if all he was saying was that Howard was a writer, then did that need saying and saying using a technical term? Anyway, I was to, uh, if I was to engage in amateur psychology, I would suggest that Howard might have had a bipolar disorder. I know someone with bipolar disorder, and they've been eccentric when hyper and suicidal when depressed and not properly medicated. Howard's bouts of furious writing and barren phases suggest this kind of behavior. Highs and lows run through his searing, melancholic poetry, and his letters mention black moods. He also says of Conan that he was a man of, quote, gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth, unquote, which is also suggestive of bipolar. If this interpretation is valid, then Howard's suicide may be a product of this condition, and far less the childish selfishness that E. Hoffman Price believed. Uh, Let me just uh, pause here. This is all real interesting stuff, just so I don't forget stuff. My uh, saying that Howard was a nut, which I have said, uh, is not based on the uh, the book Dark Valley Destiny by Sprague and Catherine DeCamp and somebody, I forget her name, who is a trained psychiatrist. I found it interesting, but a little too speculative for me, too deductive. Um, given the way Howard was brought up, he must have been this and that. I'm a little hesitant about that. Uh, but it's not, my view is not based on that, but on the descriptions of novel and price uh, of Howard. That, uh, it's weird uh, behavior. And, I mean, quirky, eccentric behavior. He He just, and he reminds me of people I know, and it does seem to me that he was sort of a nut, but that I did an article called uh, The Last Temptation of Conan, which is a kind of an interpretive essay on uh, the whole wide world. And I say, however, this is a perfect case of somebody with direct access to the muse. Uh, and that, uh, to me, Howard is a almost a Christ figure. I, I hold him in virtually religious veneration, as I do Lovecraft. So I don't mean to demean him, and I see the nuttiness evident in him as as part and parcel of this incredible gift, uh, giftedness that he had. Uh, so, and, and plus... Um, the uh, the suicide, by the way, I uh, I think that uh, it's been shown. I forget where I've read this, but I'm sure it's true that love that uh, Howard had some kind of suicide pact with friends, uh, and that he not that he followed through on it, but that he had been so bitterly disillusioned with life, and in many ways, and no doubt that's because, like you mentioned, these it does sound like he was bipolar, that he was just depressed so often he wanted to die, uh, and uh, that he had planned on committing suicide, but so great was his sense of duty to his mother 
that uh, he waited until it was clear she was not going to recover, that he decided, well, okay, then I got nothing else to hang around for. Uh, that, uh, it, In other words, that it had nothing to do with an Oedipal fixation on his mother, as if he was Norman Bates. Uh, rather, it was that he, he was deferring uh, the, the suicide he planned on committing until she didn't need him any longer, which is a whole different uh, shooting match. Um and uh, as to amateur psychologizing, if, if it's worth anything, the the DeCamp's collaborator wasn't an amateur psychologist, but I'm not really defending her because I say I found that pretty dubious as well. So I want to, uh, you know, uh, modify that. In, in terms of this business about being schizoid, I, I have read that... Uh, most writers and and other creative artists are quote schizoid personalities and to me that is no uh, surprise because it does have to do with the mental wiring one has uh, that's part of the price you pay for being in living communion with your muse uh, but but I do think you're right. De Camp was depicting Howard as more of a nut than I'm saying he was, and uh, I and it does sound like he's backpedaling when he appeals to the schizoid character, so-called, of creative writers. So I'm, I appreciate your giving me the opportunity to clarify this a bit. I don't know if you agree or not, uh, but uh, uh, I think you're largely correct. Okay, as to my earlier comment about making false connections, DeCamp falls into a common trap. I once heard Terry Jones of Monty Python talking about receiving an article from a critic. It argued that the Bruce's sketch, I might have called you Bruce, was inspired by Jones's philosophy tutor at university, an Australian called Bruce. It was an elegant theory, but Jones said the problem is that the sketch was written by Eric Idle, who didn't study philosophy, and Jones had no input into it. Uh, the article followed a false trail with perfect logic. DeCamp does this all over. He suggests that Howard followed Rousseau's noble savage, noble savage. Only Rousseau never, u never used the term. But it's clear that Howard is doing no such thing. Conan's an amalgam of, quote, various prize fighters, gunmen, bootleggers, oil field bullies, gamblers, and honest workmen, unquote, letter to Clark Ashton Smith, 23rd July, 1935. Does that sound like a noble savage? He also decides that Hyboria is a compression of Hyperborea. You know, of course, Hyboria, H-Y-B-O-R-I-A, Hyperborea, H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-R-E-A. Uh, not being interested in Celtic mythology, he doesn't notice that its root model is High Brazil, H-Y-B-R-A-S-I-L, High Boria, Bori being a tribal god king mentioned Bori, I'm sorry, did I say that? Bori, B-O-R-I, being a tribal god king mentioned in the Hyborian Age, uh, who led the Hyborians south to conquer the northern Stygian lands. Rusty Burke recently tracked down the source, 
uh, oh, this is another point. I'm sorry. Rusty Burke recently tracked down the source for the all fled, all done poem quote. You know what Lovecraft, oh, sheesh, what Howard typed right before he went out and killed himself. And it's not the one DeCamp postulated. Um, let's see. So I say read Dark Valley Destiny if you must, but Flynn's, sorry, Finn's book, F-I-N-N, is much the better work. There's a third biography, quote-unquote, called The Ultimate Triumph, but it's more of a collection of opinionated biographical essays. I didn't care for it much. As for the reputation of Elspray de Camp, that must rest on his own body of work. While that does include some questionable literary criticism... It also includes some fine, witty stories and novels and a few excellent poems. Yeah, I, I admit I, I'm regrettably not familiar with DeCamp's science fiction, as scandalous as that is, but I've read, I think, most of his fantasy, and I really love it. Uh, the Tritonian Ring, uh, the the, um, the Goblin Tower, and uh, the Dragon of the Ishtar Gate. I just love that stuff. Uh, okay, um, <laughs> uh, now to my question. The Dark Shadows TV series didn't reach Britain pretty much until... Oh, this, I'm sorry, wait a second. Did I say who this was from? Because if I did, I must have the wrong... Oh, boy. I may have juggled the uh, the authors of these comments because this one is by Lawrence Cornford pal of mine from across the pond. Sorry about that. This is all Lawrence. Uh, now to my question. Dark Shadows TV series didn't reach Britain pretty much until the Tim Burton film and then not a full run. So now I've seen a few episodes. Uh, information on the DVD I've got suggests that the Leviathan's plotline near the end of the series run was, quote, inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos, unquote. I don't recall seeing Dark Shadows listed as a Mythos TV program on such lists, so my question is, if you feel yourself able to answer, should we consider the Leviathan's plotline as Mythos, or is it inspired in a similar way to John Jakes's Brack the Barbarian, inspired by Conan, but not Conan? I, I don't know, I'm not familiar with it, but I uh, do know somebody who is. Uh, Mark Rainey will certainly know this, and I will check with him and get back to you, Lawrence. I mentioned the Book of Ibon before. Lawrence Cornford was a major contributor to that book, a very talented writer. Also, he's got a great story in my uh, collection, The Mountains of Madness. The title you know, but without the at. Okay. Um, uh, Matt Chambers, in the statement of Randolph Carter, was there any indication... Uh, in, in future stories as to what was down in the burial chamber? I don't think so, Matt. Um, yeah, I've probably bored you and everybody else stiff with uh, this little anecdote, but I guess this is not a bad place to inflict it again. 
I had a, a, a very, very vivid dream years ago in which I and a few others were sitting around a room talking with H.P. Lovecraft. And he was convivially sitting in a chair, you know, in the broken four position and holding forth on his work. And I remember noticing that his voice was indeed high pitched, as it says in some memoirs about him. And I thought to myself, you know, th this cannot be. This guy is long dead, but, but there's no doubt that this is Lovecraft. So it was pretty stunning. Well, eventually, I got up the nerve to ask him who it was in that tomb, uh, who, who uh, whose voice is heard at the end saying, you fool, Warren is dead. And, uh, because there really isn't any any clue, and there's never any reference elsewhere. I mean, he does talk about the story in his letters, but as I remember, all he says is that this was pretty near a verbatim transcript of a dream he had. He got up uh, and uh, and remembered it and grabbed a pencil and a pad and wrote it down. Only in the story, it wasn't Randolph Carter, it was H.P. Lovecraft, and it wasn't Harley Warren, it was Sam Loveman. But it was the same thing. You fool, Loveman is dead. Um, so, uh, but I don't think he says anything about who it was supposed to be because naturally it wasn't really anybody. It was just a dream, and that's all there was to it, apparently. But in <laughs> in my dream, which I guess is appropriate, Lovecraft said, "Oh well, you see, it was an elaborate." trick it was an ambush harley warren had an enemy a guy named kung i must have gotten that from hans kung the theologian but plenty of people were named that uh, and uh, this guy had sent him this mysterious cryptic manuscript with directions as to uh, where the mystery was and he was waiting down there for him and sure enough once he got there he killed him and uh, that uh, that's all there was to it, though poor uh, Carter didn't know that. I thought, oh, okay, what do you know? Now, is that what Lovecraft intended? Uh, I guess not, but uh, it's kind of funny when your own subconscious starts interpreting Lovecraft's stories as if Lovecraft was actually telling you. But I don't believe there is any indication in any, in any future story uh what the heck was in there uh matt says and the night gaunts do they ever resurface in future stories and uh, nope don't think so what are they in the uh in the fungi from yugoth somewhere yeah of course they're in there um are they said to be flitting around the uh the uh, birth pools of the proto-Shagath somewhere. I don't think he ever does anything else with them. I, I know I, you see them elsewhere, like in uh, Willem Pugmire's uh, fiction. He'll often have night gaunts in there. And there was a round robin by me and Don Webb and other worthies that appeared, uh, I don't know, two or three years ago in fantasy and science fiction about them. And uh, the story was called Night Gauntlet. But I don't believe Lovecraft has them. And uh, what are they? They I guess they're in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, too, aren't they? Yeah, boy, I got to reread all this stuff. Not that it's a chore. Uh, so I hope that helps. Uh, here's a really interesting one. Um, 
from Jim Morrison, uh, not the one you're thinking of, probably. And uh, the theme is Arthur C. Clarke and H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and he uh, has a... Let me see here. Yeah, he, he initially emailed me with this. Uh, is it possible that maybe... Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 could be viewed as a Lovecraftian horror story. In the book version, Clarke does seem clear that the extraterrestrials are benign, but that might not be true of the movie. And a little open there, right? Like many of Lovecraft's heroes, at the end, Bowman appears to become overwhelmed by what is revealed to him. The scene in the hotel room, quote-unquote, could be just a figment of his imagination after he has lost his sanity. Well, Jim really answered his own question better than I could because he refers me to an article he wrote online, and I want to uh, reproduce most of it here. It's so fascinating. I never thought of this. Um, I believe it's called Lovecraft and 2001, Similarities and Differences. I was reluctant to make too much of the possibility that Lovecraft's work had an influence on 2001 because I didn't know if Clark was familiar with Lovecraft. A quick search showed that he was. In 1940, Clark wrote At the Mountains of Murkiness, a parody of Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, in Icons of Horror and the Supernatural, an encyclopedia of our worst nightmares. S.T. Joshi mentions the story and notes that both 2001 and Childhood's End share some ideas with Lovecraft's story. Uh, by the way, uh, At the Mountains of Murkiness was eventually reprinted as a booklet unto itself. That's the one I have. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, Lovecraft. Let me just go to the, the text here. Uh, Lovecraft's basic idea is that extraterrestrials visited Earth far in the past and influenced the development of humans. The same idea underlies 2001. Uh, think of the Colavito thing we talked about before. Lovecraft suggests that these extraterrestrials were the inspiration for the gods that humanity worships. Uh, this is not suggested in the movie or book 2001, but Clark does make the suggestion in his later novel 3001, The Final Odyssey. A major difference between Lovecraft and Clark is the attitude of the extraterrestrials. In Lovecraft, they are at best indifferent to people and can be very antagonistic. Clark sees the attitude of the extraterrestrials as positive to people. In Clark's earlier short story, The Sentinel, which was the basis for 2001, the attitude of the extraterrestrial is not so clearly positive. Uh, in 3001, the attitude of the extraterrestrials is also not necessarily kindly toward people. Is it possible that maybe 2001 could be viewed as a Lovecraftian horror story? In the book, Clark does seem clear that the extraterrestrials are benign, but that might not be true of the movie. Uh, wait a minute, I guess I uh, read this part before. Um, yeah, Bowman with the hotel room scene. Lovecraft's basic idea is that extraterrestrials visited Earth. Wait a minute. I uh, have some duplicated text here. I don't know what happened. 
I uh, thought uh, I had a bit more to that, but uh, it sounds to me like you've uh, made a good case, especially once you know that he wrote at the mountains of murkiness. It'd be tough to, in light of that, uh, think that it's the similarities are pure coincidence. Uh, Mark Saracini and Charles Hoffman, both uh, experts on Howard and Lovecraft, once told me they thought that uh, that that if someone were to make a, an update of At the Mountains of Madness, it ought to be set on the moon rather than Antarctica, since we now know too much about that, not as mysterious anymore. Uh, well... That's, in a sense, what 2001 A Space Odyssey does, right? It's set on the moon. There's been this expedition that has found this monolith that uh, must be of extraterrestrial origin. And when they uh, finally search it out later, they find out that there are these pre-human and vastly superior to human uh, aliens. And, I mean, that alone is, uh, you know, enough to make you think, yeah, there's got to be some Lovecraftian influence. Because, I mean, how could there not be once you had read At the Mountains of Madness, which we know Clark did, right? What, is just coincidence? Did he forget the whole thing? And then, hey, hey I got an idea. So I think you're right, Jim. Very interesting. I never thought of that. Hmm. This is Verge, I guess that's how you say it. V-I-R-G-E. And uh, here's what he saith. Salutations, Dr. Price. I'm a Southern Californian who has been forced to live in Central North Carolina for over a decade, but I long for those sunlit days in San Diego. Uh, be warned that this submission is lengthy. I have much to say. That's okay. Anyway, I listened to your 10th episode the other night and simply had to comment on your response to the query about Lovecraft's sexuality and how it may or may not be linked to his fondness for writing about submissive men who lived with and narrated the wicked deeds of their dominant male friends. Separating the narrator from the evildoer, so to speak, may indeed have been a useful narrative device. However, I question the explanation that Lovecraft had to write these narrators as weak-willed sidekicks to their domineering best friends because readers wouldn't be able to sympathize with the mad scientists or demented occultists. Lovecraft was no stranger to unsympathetic and, dare I say it, perverted narrators. The narrator of The Hound, for instance, is just as obsessed with death and grave robbing as his companion is, even if said companion edges him out as the more dominant half of the pair. The narrator of the temple doesn't appear to wallow in filth as the proto-Leopold and Loeb of the Hound do, but he's a brutal German commander who sees other nations as Schwein, someone whom the American reading public would not have sympathized with at all after World War I. The crown jewel of all these monstrous men is the effeminate necrophile in The Loved Dead, who, let's be honest, is really not especially far removed from Herbert West, Harley Warren, or Sinjin and his bosom buddy. Basically, I think there's more to the trope of intense male bonding in Lovecraft's fiction than just the narrative convenience. Interesting. Uh, simply being married to a woman and capable of performing heterosexually does not make a man heterosexual. After all, Oscar Wilde had a wife and children, and based on what we know, all his other sex partners were male. We don't know that HPL had any sex partners other than Sonia Green, and frankly, it wouldn't be very surprising if he 
it would be very surprising if he did, that he spent several weeks in Robert Barlow's residence, his eyebrow-raising, but it's unlikely that any phys- anything physical happened between him and any of his teenage fanboys. But again, refraining from homosexual activity does not in and of itself make anyone heterosexual. All the evidence, in my opinion, points to HPL being an asexual man who liked men. I also think that the exaggerated reports of his so-called freakishness may in large part exist because he was a man who didn't like sex. And and he does say that, by the way, uh, in, in his letters, that he's happily asexual. Uh, biographers, commentators, and fans tend to overlook HPL's frustration at his inability to get into college, but in my opinion, that aspect of his life influenced his fiction just as significantly as his racism and atheism. What he probably wanted and needed, whether he realized it consciously or not, was a nice male roommate. He could have had such a relationship easily if he'd been accepted to a university, but he never was. And consider how he describes his utopian alien societies. In At the Mountains of Madness, Dyer says of the elder things, and the old ones had no biological basis for the family phase of mammal life, but seemed to organize large households on the principles of comfortable space, utility, and as we deduce from the pictured occupations and diversions of co-dwellers, congenial mental association. In other words, the elder things live like college students. The shadow out of time is more explicit with its objects, that is, Yithians, uh, moving intelligently about the great rooms, getting books from the shelves and taking them to the great tables, and wearing satchels and knapsacks constantly, to say nothing of the prisoners who write like a horrid parody of students at exams. These species both inhabit intellectual homosocial paradises. All their pleasure is mental, as far as we know, and they're all the same, non-binary, sex, all the same sex, non-binary. But the world that many of HPL's human characters... uh, but the world that many of HPL's human characters inhabit is an intellectual homosocial paradise, too. I wonder if any of those aliens have romantic relationships. In conclusion, do I think Lovecraft was homosexual? No. Do I think he would have greatly enjoyed and benefited from a passionate, emotional, and mental bond with another guy? I'd be lying if I answered in the negative. Thank you for providing us with this excellent podcast. Well, thank you, Verge, for an excellent uh, Little essay. Fascinating. Sounds pretty good to me. Ooh, uh, Chris, may I please ask if you feel that Lovecraft's true genius lies not just in his unique literary style, his aggrandizement of antiquarianism, his depiction of cosmic indifference, or even in his inventive use of morphology, but his redefining of the Greek tragedy? Could we read his works to be, at heart, works of pathos and catharsis, and, when viewed in this manner, the classic tragedies may be read as distinctly Lovecraftian? Scylla and Charybdis are terrors worthy of Lovecraft. I was kind of thinking that last night, watching Clash of the Titans. Uh, As, too, is the Sphinx, whose threat depends upon ignorance, and whose riddle is based upon human frailty and possibly even futility. 
I would love to hear the eldritch ruminations of a d damaged mind on this. Um, are you suggesting that he was consciously carrying over themes from the Greek tragedies? I don't happen to know if he had read them, but uh, we do know he had been a great fan of Greek mythology, and the dramas are, of course, important sources for our knowledge of them. Uh, it's hard to say without more explicit, detailed borrowings, because uh, it's like they say correlation is not causation. He could simply have had the same concerns and wanted to give them literary expression. Um, so I, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know if you're asking that, though. Um, when you say redefining of Greek tragedy, did he do that in, in effect or by intent? I'm not sure what you mean, but uh, I would say there is this tragic sense, but I, I see it reflecting more Dr. Faustus and the, the Gnostic bargain with a devil, so to speak. And uh, as to Cthulhu and these tentacled monsters, it seems to me a little more likely it comes from the Kraken. But uh, I don't know. I, I couldn't say it wouldn't be surprising. He certainly had great interest in the classics. But I just uh, don't really uh, don't really know. It's an interesting theory. You ought to pursue it more and let us know what you come up with. And uh, this, uh, getting close to the end of the, to the bottom of the slime bucket here, Hans Erikson. Um, I pen this epistle from luminescent and arid Tucson. Um... In my prior missive under the nom de Lovecraft of John, I mentioned my favorite story was Nyarlathotep. I have since changed to At the Mountains of Madness with the Dunwich Horror, the Shadow over Innsmouth, and the Call of Cthulhu. Now, why is he telling us this? Well, you remember way back at the beginning, I invited people to tell us what their favorite uh, Lovecraft stories are. It's just always interesting to hear that, so don't think Hans is just gratuitously blathering this he's in fact i want everybody else to tell me i find that interesting okay i've been thinking about the name cthulhu and i'm curious if the cuttlefish might have had an influence in the image and name of the great old one. Oh well you know how much he hated uh seafood it's not at all unlikely if he's thinking now what's the most disgusting thing I can turn into a monster. Hey, how about that cuttlefish? On another note, I grew up in New England, and as you have suspected, D-U-N-W-I-C-H should be said Dunwich. Uh, middle dentals and W's become weaker or silent in the East Anglian accent, which dominates New England. I believe a previous question mentioned the parallel between the Dunwich or Dunwich horror and the gospel. I believe another parallel might solve the issue of paternity. Uh, in the Dunwich, I guess I should say, Dunwich horror, Wilbur and the creature are the sons of Lavinia, and there is textual dispute of the paternity. Um, I guess the what's at the scene in Osborne's General Store where uh, Wizard Waitley says that uh, the father of Lavinia's boy is 
as good a husband as you can find in these parts. And who is that? Right? In in Matthew, Jesus is recorded as the son of Mary of the genealogy, with the implication and inference that Joseph is the father. And yet, the text claims either Yahweh or El Elyon is the father. Uh, Yahweh, another pronunciation of Jehovah, and El Elyon, God Most High. In the Dunwich Har, the text supports Yag Sathoth as the father by birth or adoption, and Old Whateley by birth. Uh, Old Wizard Whateley by birth. Uh, this is like uh, the way, let me interrupt you, um, that uh, Stan Sargent reads it. How exactly did Yag Sathoth impregnate Lavinia? just some tentacle out of thin air? Uh, or was it that he possessed Wizard Whateley and that he uh, had incestuous intercourse with her? Makes a lot of sense. It seems to be that Lovecraft was trying to write a lath spell, L-A-T-H spell, opposite of God spell, never heard that, which is just a God spell, of course, the old English that becomes gospel, uh, which just barely is prevented the, the you know the gospel uh, the negative gospel of uh, the triumph of Yag Sathoth that just gets headed off of the past. What are your thoughts on these observations? Well, uh, Don Burleson and somebody else whose name I forget uh, have pointed out that we do seem to have a Christian parrot or a parody of Christianity here, and that uh, yeah the virgin birth of uh, Jesus is uh, poked fun at here with uh, that of Yag Sathoth and. Uh, when uh, Wilbur dies at the jaws of the German shepherd in the library and th his dying words lead to the uh, the freeing of his invisible brother, it's sort of like the resurrection. But then you flip back to Golgotha when the invisible brother ascends Sentinel Hill and is uh, conjured out of this plane by Armitage and his buddies, and he says, Father, and this is uh, like Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that's darn near demonstrated, and so that I think you're probably right about this, that that is the intent. The Necronomicon functions as very much as the Septuagint Bible, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, does in Matthew's Gospel, when it gives the supposed prophetic prediction of the virgin birth of Jesus. So you could say that even that, the quote from Isaiah 7.14, the Necronomicon is kind of a uh, analog to that. So, thanks a bunch, Hans. I think you're right on target. Now, the many-angled one says, Oh, my brother in Dagon, I have frequently encountered the phrase, that which should not be should not be what exactly well i think the first mythos use of that is uh, in the salem horror by henry cutner where he speaks of niagtha uh, as the thing that should not be i tend to use the uh, the phrase of uh, about uh, oh, what the heck's her name now rosie o'donnell but uh, but uh, of course it it means the thing which by rights should not exist and shouldn't be in our world. Uh, how the heck did it get here? Uh, which is sort of the same 
image implied in Lovecraft's use of Riemannian geometry with his oddly angled non-Euclidean design of Rillier. It comes from a completely different universe, and yet here it is. I think that's what it means. The thing that should not be here, or the thing that should not exist. Oh, let's see. Joe, I'm a Lovecraftian fan from merry old England, so good luck with the accent. You've drawn parallels on the show between Azathoth and the Gnostic Demiurge. Lord Dunsany also had a Gnostic element in some of his work, and one of my favorite weird tales, A Voyage to Arcturus by David Lindsay, I don't know if you've read it, uh, no, I'm ashamed to say I have not, is clearly inspired by Gnostic themes. So my question, can you recommend any other weird fiction with an obvious Gnostic influence? And are there any other real historical religious sects, cults, or movements like the Gnostics that strike you as being particularly Lovecraftian in their beliefs? Cheers from Blighty. Uh, Well, I am certainly going to say that uh, Richard L. Tierney's great stories about Simon of Gitta, the biblical Simon Magus, uh, their, their sword and sorcery stories that uh, have Gnosticism interwoven with them. It's just incredibly fascinating. I collected them all into a book for Chaosium called uh, The Scroll of Thoth, Tales of Simon Magus and the Great Old Ones. I have a very long essay on Simon Magus as the introduction. And then there are these two novels, The Gardens of Lucullus, that I mentioned already, by Tierney and uh, and uh, Glenn Raymond, that is R-A-H-M-A-N, and uh, all Tierney, The Drums of Chaos, I believe... Uh, hmm. I think Mythos Books put that out. Uh, they are both terrific and uh, well, well worth taking whatever trouble you... Well, all three are terrific and uh, well worth getting a hold of. Those explicitly equate Azathoth with Akamoth and so forth. There are other important writers who who have used Gnosticism in a kind of fantastic framework but i cannot think of the names it's nothing i've read there there are good uh elements as to different sects and the like certainly the one that takes the cake is om shin rikyo a japanese movement that is kind of it's sort of syncretistic and is uh kind of involved with shiva worship even though it it's japanese uh, but i guess you know since buddhism is so big there and the hindu gods kind of sneak in on the coattails of buddhism maybe that's where he learned it but the uh the guru can't think of his name now uh he got his disciples some years ago probably remember this to mix up sarin gas and uh, pump it into the ducts of the tokyo subway it killed several people sickened loads more but didn't do nearly the damage they had hoped because they were just sort of incompetent in fact the, the same clowns had 
tried to release it from the air ducts in buildings downtown, but it just dissipated. They didn't really know what they were doing, luckily. Well, why'd they do this? Well, their belief was that the old gods were coming back to rule the earth and to prepare their way, the devotees of Om Shinrikyo uh, had to clear the earth of human life. They had to kill everybody. That kind of uh, rings a familiar bell there. I mean, that is that is uh, certainly Lovecraftian. And I have no idea if it was at all based on Lovecraft. It's conceivable, because Lovecraft certainly is popular in Japan. But that would be the big one. Uh, theosophy and its offshoots have something in common with Lovecraft, but then again, he based some of his lore on theosophy, which his pal E. Hoffman Price told him about, and theosophy is generally pretty benign. There's not that uh, anti-human notion that you find in the Cthulhu cults. Uh, but though that's the big parallel, and that's the big source of uh, Gnostic weird tales and uh, all fascinating and worthy of more uh, more uh, investigation. Well, that's it for today's Lovecraft Geek. I will uh, see you soon, but the slime bucket is at present empty, and I will need you to refill it. So send those questions in, and I will check on that uh, thing with dark shadows for next time. So thank you so much for your participation in the Lovecraft Geek. If you can help the old Lovecraft Geek, who is close to as uh, as uh, poverty-stricken these days as Lovecraft himself, uh, you can go to my uh, PayPal uh, button on my website, robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Uh, if not, eh, what the heck? Who cares? I want you to enjoy the Bible or the uh, the Lovecraft Geek, anyhow. So I'll see you soon. Mm, bye bye. The Lovecraft Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix. Catch up with Mike Davis and Mythos communities everywhere by devouring the free online Lovecraft e-zine at lovecraftzine.com for events, news, and information. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Lovecraft Geek on iTunes. To catch up with Doctor Price's projects purchase merchandise, and donate to help support Dr. Price and his family, please visit robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Thanks for listening to The Lovecraft Geek. I'm Torin Atkinson.